Good morning. Hello, everybody. My name is Jeannie. This is my husband, Tony. And we just want to welcome you here this morning, this Sunday morning. We're going to take a break from the book of Samuel just for the next two weeks and focus on the idea, the concept of blessing. And specifically today, we're going to focus on the biblical concept of hospitality. Now, as Tony and I were talking about this idea and leaning into it, we started musing about what our hospitality looked like before, during, and after, or in this weird post-pandemic life. So now before COVID, before COVID, we had this game. If you came to our house, it was always, how many people can we fit inside? <laughs> didn't matter the size of our home. It didn't matter the time of day, what was happening. It was always, how many people? We loved hosting and loved to do it a lot and with many, many people. And then just before COVID, it was kind of a grand, exciting day because we fit 53 people inside our house pre thanks for that Thanksgiving before COVID. We, granted, we moved all of the furniture out of the way. Um, but we had 53 people inside at tables sitting down for Thanksgiving. Family, friends, new military folks to the church. It was pretty exciting and epic for us. Then came COVID, right? Everything changed. It affected people in many different ways. For us, we decided what hospitality looked like is opening up a Zoom room. We had many a Zoom gathering from our computer screen, sometimes on our bed, sometimes sitting on our couch. We even opened up our backyard to our freezing PG temperatures. I invested in a cozy, lovely hooded thing with wonderful pockets and a back backyard heater to help us with our um, hosting in the outside. Then came, now we're in this new normal. And like many of you, we're all still adjusting. I just want to say, this wasn't exactly planned, but it's really fun to be up here with Not Jeannie. Cool. Uh, I, uh, this is the first time we've ever team taught together, and she's just such an amazing spouse, and really, I really hope that you guys get to enjoy some of her insight and wisdom, and okay, back to what I actually have prepared. Better be careful. Uh, you go live, <laughs> I go live. <laughs> she's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to get in trouble for this later. Okay. <laughs> Now, before we get too far into application, I want to sort of ground this idea of hospitality within the structure and the narrative of the Scriptures, which is actually pretty easy to do, because when you open up your Bible, it actually begins with hospitality. Now, we often don't think of the creation narratives in this way, but in fact, God is hosting all of existence. He's hosting all of creation. Right? He begins with setting the table of life, right? He attends to the lighting, right? The stars in the sky. He attends to the place his guests will live, the dry land, right? He provides plenty of food, fruits, vegetables, creatures, all kinds of things, right? He brings his primary guests to the table made in his image to bear his image in the world as hosts, and then after hosting the world, he sits back and enjoys a post-creativity siesta, right? He rests, right? Genesis 1, God is depicted as the host of all existence. And the crazy thing is that's how the Bible starts and it's how the Bible ends, right? The God as host bookend the Bible. There's prophets that imagine the day that God will return. Isaiah has this incredible insight. Isaiah 25, 6, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. 
a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. So you have this idea of God's going to come back, and what is He going to do? He's going to throw this huge banquet with the best meat, the best wine, and awesome cheese. You have this picture of God as host at the beginning and at the end. And central to this focus on hospitality is this idea of relationships. The psalmist in Psalm 66 says, God sets the lonely in families. You see, humans are created for relationship. You can see this from the very first pages of the Bible, right? God has one really distinct message about creation. It is good, right? Day one good. He just every day, it's tov, it's tov, it's tov. Get to the last day, he's like, man, this is tov ma'od. It's really, really good. What's fascinating is that this positivity starts to shift in Genesis 2. After making Adam and telling him not to eat, right, of the tree of the knowledge of tov and ra of good and evil, in verse 18, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Wait, what? Day, days after days, it's all good. And then Tov Ma'od, the first thing in all of creation not to be good is man being alone. C.J. Wenham wrote this, wrote this commentary on Genesis and the word biblical commentary, and he says this, the divine observation that something was not right with man's situation is startling, right? God has the ability to promote radical individualism from day one, right? He could have made a planet for each of us, in the very least an island, right? He could have done anything. This isn't what He does, right? So many options. In fact, God underlines the need for community, for relationships by not making Adam and Eve at the same time. Right, if he had made it at the same time, you, them at the same time, you just would read right over it. But by actually making Adam incomplete without other human relationships, he emphasizes that human beings were not created as independent, but actually as relational creatures. Can I just get an amen to that? <laughs> right? Isn't it awesome that he doesn't want us to be alone? Because two is obviously better than one right? I just think it's such an amazing thing that God does. And He doesn't just do it with Adam and Eve. He also does it with Abraham. He starts Abraham off on this journey with him. And He doesn't just make him a one individual person doing his thing with God. He becomes a great nation, a nation of people. Then as that nation flounders, they get trapped in the desert in Egypt. God does it again, not with just Moses. He could have just hung out with Moses on top of the mountain, but he doesn't. He goes with Moses and gathers the people, and together he gives them food, land, a journey that keeps them all together. Then when those people go off course, as we are opt to do, they're exiled. He doesn't just give consequences to one person. It's the entire people. And that doesn't, that's just a few examples from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you see Jesus again. He's forming communities of people. He doesn't just come and do his own thing. He takes a group of 12, gathers them together, a band of people, and he gives them his Holy Spirit, leaves them, sends them out into the world, 
and they become the early church, right? We see early church leaders like Paul telling the church in Rome to practice hospitality, Romans 12, 13. Then again, Paul says to the early church in 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Welcome people in. He uses the Greek, Paul, and he uses the Greek twice in both of those instances. He says the word philoxenia, philo, which means love, and xenia, which means stranger. He wants them to love the stranger. Not xenophobia, being afraid of strangers. He wants them to love the strangers in their midst. He's calling the church to show love to strangers, to love each other. I mean, excuse me, to love them. Because hospitality doesn't just mean loving your extended family or your closest friends or those you're more relationally inclined to hang out with. It means loving those that are different than you that you don't know, that you're not even sure you may want to know. And that's what the message of the early church is. That's what the message of Jesus is over and over and over again. But let me get real. So one of the first times I experienced this love, especially by being loved by a stranger, was when I was seven months pregnant. Our daughter Claire was two years old. And the, the three, I guess half, four of us. He counts. That's a four. Yeah. <laughs> um, we flew down to Nicaragua to lead a makerspace camp for a small village that our church had connection with. And we were hosted by people we had never met from that community that wanted to be a part of what we were about to do. So this family literally is welcoming us into their home, and we're staying in some of their home's best accommodations, which, again, from an American standpoint, isn't always at the same experience level. But we had no running water, but we were hosted. We were welcomed. We were staying there, and everything was going pretty dandy until my two-year-old daughter starts throwing up in the middle of the night all over their home where we were staying, and there's no running water, no running water. So you can imagine our experience as newish parents, you know, we've been at this two years, to have a throwing up toddler in this space causing a complete mess. So we're doing our best. It's the middle of the night. We're trying not to wake people up. I'm thinking, okay, let's just gather all of the messy things. We're using sheets to wipe stuff up. We just, we're doing the best we can. And I just set all of this soiled mess on the front porch because I have no idea what to do with any of it. Wake up in the morning after trying to get some sleep and do you know what happened? Those sheets, all that soil material was completely gone from the porch. Nowhere in sight. I was mortified. Oh my gosh, what have we done? And you know, I can't even begin to explain how they were hand washing it in their sinks, in their basin, taking care of all of that yuck because they were hosting us the strangers in their home. And for them, that's what it meant to take care of us. They fed us, they helped us sleep, they hosted us in a way that only can be aligned with how Jesus calls us to host others. Now, we might think this is sort of normal on some level, we think, sure, we're supposed to practice hospitality, right? Philo, Xenia. Okay, love the stranger. But the truth is, you, fa- you go back to the first century, this n- was not like the normal religious activity. In fact, Jesus' approach to hospitality created tons 
of conflict. See, in the first century in Palestine, you didn't just eat with someone who was different than you, of different social standing, of questionable character, of different religious persuasion. And yet, Jesus constantly challenges these assumptions, so much so that people in the Gospels even say to Him, look at Him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And when you read through the Gospels, the examples are nearly endless. Mark 2, Jesus is eating again with people both near and far from God. Mark 2.16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that He was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to His disciples, right, not to Him, to the disciples, why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners, right, in modern parlance? Why does He eat with people that are far from God? Now, I'm just going to take a second, because sometimes we read sinners and tax collectors, and we have a hard time, like, translating that into modern parlance. So, I'd like you to just take a second and imagine someone in your workplace, in your block, in your family, maybe that isn't all that close to Jesus these days. Maybe someone you don't even like, someone that gets under your skin, and you'd prefer not to spend any time with them. Maybe someone that you think is kind of unclean, someone you would disagree with fundamentally. And this is what Jesus says to that person, just like He replied in the first century. And when Jesus heard it, He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus eats with people so that they can come to know God. He's like, what do you expect? I want these people to come to know God. How else am I going to build a relationship with them? I'm going to eat with them. That's what we do, right? This is where we connect. This is where we talk. This is where we ask questions, share stories, break bread, right? So that people come to know God. Because of this, right, Jesus' value for people and His desire to eat with them, people who are not good synagogue attenders start hanging out with Him, start coming to Him, start flocking towards Him. And in Luke 15, you have this cool picture. It says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners. He eats with them. He hosts them. In Luke 15, Uh, right, the Pharisees are complaining that Jesus is eating with the wrong people again. And he offers, in response, one of the most textured and beautiful pictures of God's heart and hospitality. He tells three parables. The first is there's a shepherd who loses a sheep, and he leaves behind 99 to go after the lost sheep to bring it back. And then what he does? He throws a party. Second example is of a a woman who searches the floor for a coin. This lost coin finds it and then throws a party. Third example is of a father whose son decides to take his inheritance and go to a distant land. 
And a father is waiting for the son to return. And he sees the, fa- the son coming back, but from a distance. Now, in our, our sort of world, we'd think, oh, yeah, the father would just go meet him. But in the first century, there's a ceremony called the Kazaza ceremony where the, if a son squandered his inheritance, people of the community would meet the son at the threshold of the town and beat him as a way to say to all the sons in the town, don't do that. The father knows it's going to happen, so what he does is the very thing Middle Eastern men cannot do, right? The Middle Eastern man is supposed to wait as a picture of dignity in his place for his son to come to him beaten and groveling. Instead, what the father does is he runs through the town. So now everyone in the town is talking about this inappropriate Middle Eastern man, and they forget about the son. And he runs up to the son and he welcomes him. And then what does he do? He hosts a party. Jesus is eating with all these sinners and tax collectors, people that are far from God. And he says, this is the Father's heart. The Father seeks, finds, and then hosts in a giant celebration and party. As we keep going into Luke, a few chapters later in chapter 19, Jesus decides who wants to hang out with this social outcast, this tax collector named Zacchaeus. Jesus allows himself to be hosted by Zacchaeus. And again, right, the crowd grumbles. The text says it grumbles because Jesus is eating with this guy, allowing himself to be hosted at Zacchaeus' table, saying in verse 7, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. How dare he be hosted by this sinner? And yet, in the midst of Jesus being hosted, eating with this man, being with Zacchaeus, something pretty incredible happens. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus approaches a man far from God. He goes to his house as a guest. And through his willingness to be hosted, to receive hospitality, what began as a meal turns into a moment of salvation. Jeff Vanderstelten saturates says it well when he says this, God doesn't just want us to feast or celebrate as his people. He wants us to remember him, keeping him central to the party by showing kindness, love, and mercy to all those who lack a reason to celebrate. And we're invited to be the kind of people that invite those who are near and far from God to be with us, to eat, ta- eat at our tables with us, to welcome people to our tables and into our lives. Right? And if our goal here is to model right, the, the life and ministry of Jesus, then we can't ignore right, the fundamental importance of hospitality. Read the Gospels. Jesus is constantly hosting and being hosted. 
Remember, when Jesus says practice hospitality, when Paul says practice hospitality, right, he's saying love of strangers, love of the other, love of the person who maybe doesn't align with you perfectly theologically or politically or whatever. We're trying to look to the example of Jesus here at Wellspring to help shape what it means for us to be a blessing. And I think in order to do that, we need to look at hospitality. Now, as we sort of shift from the text to our lives, we want to highlight two things of how we think this applies. The first is this idea of us being hosts. And the second is this idea of us being willing to be hosted. Let's first talk about hosting. So to begin with, it's really important that we differentiate hosting from entertaining, right? So hospitality for Jesus isn't about entertaining. Rosaria Butterfield says in Radical, Radically Ordinary Hospitality, entertainment is about impressing people, keeping them at arm's length. Hospitality is about opening up your heart and your home just as you are and being willing to invite Jesus into the conversation. Not to stop the conversation, but to deepen it. Our hope is not a Martha Stewart picture-perfect event. Or for some of you younger generations, an Instagram-worthy, every-corner-of-the-room, picture-perfect posting event, right? That is entertaining. We are wanting to host people, to create a space where we welcome them and we welcome God. And that's a big difference. When I was first married, I still remember eagerly clicking on all of the things that we were going to register for so that I could set the perfect table for people to be hosted with matching napkins and placemats and plates. And then we had our 300-square-foot apartment in downtown San Jose where none of those things would fit. And thus became our game of how many people can we fit inside? Um, then later, after we had kids, there was a new challenge afoot for me. And it was, again, not to host people in this perfection sort of way, but to welcome them into my messy life, which for anyone who has ever been around a small child, they're very messy. And it's really hard to keep a clean home. And if I only hosted when our house was clean, we would never see anyone. So I decided to make the active decision to stop putting away the laundry when I invited someone over, to not pick up the Cheerios and the toys all over the floor, but to welcome someone into my home for a play date or a moment of prayer and offer myself and our home in all of its messiness and believe that God would show up in our midst. And I can't tell you of how much of a radical shift that was for me and how much I saw that actually the offering that God gave me then was to be authentic. And authenticity is what people received when they came into my home. Not a moment to be pictured and posted or to go back and say, oh, I need to get those plates. But a moment where they had a connection that was deeper than all of those things. So as our lives are imperfect, our goal in hosting is to let God be with us and we welcome others into the midst of it. And maybe along that journey, we actually help people draw near to God in the process. I remember um, 
an experience we had of hospitality early on coming down here to do a church, the church plant in 2017. Uh, we were in Washington and our, we had a great community up there. So we left like this community of people that knew us and loved us. And we came down here and, uh, you know, we, we weren't sure what was going to happen. And I remember this family uh, or a, a collection of a couple people had us over for dinner. And this is five years ago, so my kids were six and three. I, and honestly, it's funny, I don't remember anything about like what food was served, whether it was terrible or whether it was good. I don't remember whether the house was immaculate. I don't. I, I don't remember I do even. remember the house was completely white. They had like white carpet and white couches. Yeah, to the horror of a, a parent of a six and three-year-old. <laughs> um, but what I remember is this moment after dinner. And uh, our kids had sort of gotten to the end of their attention span, and now they were making up a game under the table. And I saw the, the person across from me sort of making these faces, and I was wondering, what is happening? <laughs> but they were just sort of chatting and going along with whatever was going on until one moment I was like, this is so weird. So I look under the table, and my children are trying to pull off this person's socks. Yep. And I'm watching the person trying to like kick their foot. While having a conversation. <laughs> but what I remember is how, <laughs> is how gentle mm -hmm. this person was. I remember how kind they were. Right, because our kids were trying to literally take off their clothes <laughs> under, their ta under the table. And this could have been a moment where we could have been shamed, where my kids could have been yelled at. But instead, this person, this follower of Jesus, modeled the way of Jesus over a meal, displaying the kindness and the grace and the gentleness of Jesus to my children. In a world where the church is seen as judgmental, arrogant, reactive, the table becomes a place where people get to see what it looks like to practice the way of Jesus. The kindness, the gentleness, the person focus. Rosaria Butterfield again. Practicing radically ordinary hospitality is your street credibility with your post-Christian neighbors. It allows you to listen, to keep secrets, to be a safe friend, to speak a word of grace into dark places. In post-Christian communities, your words can only be as strong as your relationships. Your best weapon is an open door, a set table, a fresh pot of coffee, and a box of Kleenex for the tears that spill. And as we lean into what does it mean to be a blessing in the 21st century on the peninsula, I just want to ask us, is your door open? Is your table a place where people can come and experience the grace, the kindness, the mercy, the truth of Jesus. Because in a world that is defined and shaped by division, 
a world that is defined and shaped by busyness, one of the most profound and prophetic offerings and proclamations of the gospel we can make is a table, is a practice of hospitality that welcomes everyone in. Hosting. But what about being hosted? Jesus says yes to being hosted by Zacchaeus, right? And the meal goes from a meal invite to salvation. And this idea of being hosted runs throughout the Gospels. Why? Jesus didn't have a home. He was hosted a lot. Right? He says yes when people invite him over. There's this great story in Luke 7. A Pharisee actually invites Jesus over for dinner, and he's like, sure, I'll go to your house too. And while he says yes, there's this woman who hears that Jesus is going to be there, and she grabs her alabaster jar of ointment. It's expensive ointment. She lays next to him. She washes his feet with her tears. She dries his feet with her hair. She takes the ointment and puts it over him. And the Pharisee, the host, is super embarrassed. Things are not exactly going the way he hoped. But because Jesus says yes, because he allows him to be himself to be hosted, this profound moment happens at the party in which Jesus reveals the Father's grace and love and forgiveness to this woman. Now, sometimes it's pretty easy to say yes to something, right? When someone invites you over and you're like, yes, I would like that filet mignon dinner not cooked for me. Sure, I'm doing that. But then there's other times when it's not easy to say yes. Sometimes it's really hard. Maybe it's a work party and you don't like your coworkers and everyone's going, but they want you to come along. Or maybe it's a birthday party for a small child that goes on for six hours. <laughs> or maybe it's a shower or a baseball game or just there's just moments when we don't want to say yes. And while they may be inconvenient, we also have to wonder, though, are those opportunities that God is giving us, that God is inviting us to be hosted, to show up and to see what he might do? But there's a lot of discernment that needs to take place, right, before we make these decisions. A number of years ago, Tony and I had developed this ongoing relationship. So we were in a different part of downtown San Jose, a primarily Latino neighborhood, and it was fantastic because literally like three houses down from our street was a liquor store. That part wasn't as awesome, but the taco <laughs> shop inside said liquor store was fantastic. We had dollar tacos. And for any of you that have heard Tony's stories, dollar tacos are an easy family negotiation Super on what's cheap. for dinner, yeah. right? What's for dinner tonight? I don't know. I could cook or we could get dollar tacos. <laughs> what would you choose? Um, so it just became a regular thing for us um, when we weren't able to make dinner, when we were rushing or things were happening, that we would go inside this store. And that led to this ongoing relationship with the owner of the store, with the family that owned the store and ran the store. And it happened to be a Sikh family. And over time, they actually invited us into their home. They said, we would like to serve you a meal. 
So we prayed and thought about it, and the answer was yes, of course. Why would we not say yes to something like this, even though we have no idea what we're walking into? And it ended up being this really rich, beautiful moment of community. They showed us the spices that were put together that created the food that we were eating, even gave us bottles of said spices to take home so, so we could good. totally botch it yeah. up when we did it on our own. <laughs> they welcomed us. We met their children. We met, we met the wife. It was just such a beautiful moment in this everyday experience that we were not expecting. And it led to follow-up conversations that Tony and the owner had, where the owner even bought religious texts of their own to share and have conversations with Tony about. So we saw God at work just by getting tacos at a liquor store, <laughs> right? There's discernment. We don't know the opportunities, the places where God is moving and is at work in our life. And so I would just encourage you to look around to see where those might be. Now, I know some of you introverts are like, seriously, you want me to host people and say yes when I'm being hosted? <laughs> no, I don't want to do any of it. And I feel you so much because my, anyone who knows me well knows that my ideal night is pajamas at six, bedtime by nine, and no one around. <laughs> Sorry, it's just it's true. It's just true. <laughs> so I love this quote from Rosaria Butterfield who says, we introverts miss out on great blessings when we excuse ourselves from practicing hospitality because it exhausts us. I often find people exhausting, I agree, but over the years, I have learned how to pace myself, how to prepare for the private time necessary to recharge, and how to grow in discomfort, knowing that your personality, your sensitivities, don't excuse you from ministry. It means you need to prepare differently than others might, which is so true for me. And I wonder if there's some introverts who can relate to that. Now, for me, what this has meant is a regular Sabbath practice time. Once a week, Tony takes the kids, and I leave and go away, and I am on my own, and I sit before Jesus' feet, and we sort through what has happened in my week, what might be happening in the coming week, and I just receive and rest with no one needing anything from me, and it is glorious. It doesn't always happen, but most of the time we make an effort to make that happen because we know, especially me, that that is truly important because it helps me to know when I need to say yes and when I need to say no because there's a difference. So as we sort of lean into the practicalities of hosting and being hosted, right? We have Easter coming up in a couple weeks. And I think there's an invitation and maybe even a little bit of a challenge, I think, laid before us. And this is it. As Jeannie and I sort of thought and prayed, we want to have something like uber practical. And this is it. Hosting. I would encourage you. Think of someone in your life who doesn't really know much or experience much of Jesus these days. And before Easter, host them in some way. Invite them into your house. Introduce them to people that are close to you, whatever. Host them. you got three weeks. Let's not fill the next three weeks with all kinds of stuff that makes our life busy to the exclusion of practicing the way of Jesus. 
Identify one person over the next three weeks that you can host. And maybe it's not a dinner. Maybe it's a lunch. Maybe it's just a coworker and you treat them to lunch. That's okay, right? That counts. We don't have like a benchmark of exactly what this has to be. Discern, pray, invite Jesus into the process. What does it look like for me or for us as a family to host? So try it once in the next three weeks. And second, over the next three weeks, I also want to challenge you to say yes to being hosted. My guess is there's something going on in the next three weeks that maybe you don't want to go to. (laughs) Maybe you do, but maybe there's something you're like, yeah, I'd prefer not to go to this. But maybe something pops up and it's actually the Holy Spirit giving you a space to connect with people that God is already wooing towards Himself. And in these invitations, we don't always know when that opportunity is going to pop up. But I can guarantee you, if you always say no to being hosted, we're going to miss out on opportunities when God is setting a table before us. And He's giving us an opportunity to turn a meal into a moment of salvation, of someone experiencing the presence and goodness of God. I want to invite the worship team up. Um, And as we go into worship, I just want to say one thing, because I think sometimes, you know, as Jeannie and I are talking, you're like, man, that's a lot to take in. You know, the introverts again are having like an internal panic attack. (laughs) And they're just like, oh my gosh, you know. But I think I want to frame this in that hospitality is not fundamentally about you doing something. Remember, the Bible begins and ends with God as host. And as Jeannie and I were preparing this message, I I just kept coming back to Jesus hosting the Lord's Supper, this final meal with his disciples. And he says to them, right, he grabs the bread and he says, it's going to be broken for you, right? And he hands it to them because he wants them to know that the host, Jesus, is offering himself to the disciples so that they can experience his life. Right? And then he grabs the wine and he's like, hey, my blood is going to be shed for you, but hey, I give it to you so that you can experience my life. So Jesus, the host, is hosting us, giving himself to us so that we are empowered, so that we can host others in the way of Jesus, so that they came to know right, the heart of Jesus and the heart of the Father. So as we turn to worship, I just invite you to listen to maybe what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you practically, but at a deeper level, just allow yourself in this space to think of and marinate in all the ways that God has hosted you, all the ways that He has drawn you near and welcomed you and embraced you in your need and neediness. Jesus, we come to this space saying, God, we want to follow in your steps. God, we want to practice hospitality as Paul instructed, as you did. God, we want to be people that host others. We don't want to be a people that create all these boundary markers for belonging. We want to be a people that say, hey, you want to come eat with me? Our table is a safe place, a gracious place, a kind place, where we get to model the way of Jesus. And Holy Spirit, just open our eyes that we might know those moments when you're opening a door through someone else's hospitality. 
And Jesus, we give you our fears, our worries, our anxieties. When we feel overwhelmed, God, we just say, you are the ultimate host of all things. Shape me into your image, Lord. God, you are good and beautiful and kind. You are gentle. You are the one who welcomes the lost. You are the one who heals the broken. May we follow in your steps. And in this moment, we worship you. Mend our hearts that they are like yours. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand and sing.